Hello and welcome to another Sustainable Wine podcast. Joining me back in the podcast uh, after a brief hiatus of a few months is Joe Fatterini. So welcome back to the podcast, Joe. How are you today? I'm very well and I'm delighted that you invited me back. I must have not mucked up so much the last time that you don't invite me back. Well, now, now I feel terrible if anybody's not been invited back. That implies that they weren't amazing. And actually, I listen regularly and you have phenomenal guests. So I'm just honoured to be asked back. Oh, thank you. Well, we had some nice comments and a couple of complaints after the last podcast, uh, but none that I could substantiate. So here we are back again. The positive comments were overwhelming in, in terms of the in-depth conversation we had. I think our objective this time, Joe, is to be a bit more succinct because the last one was quite long. And yeah. listeners, if you want to listen to the previous podcast that Joe and I did, which we both think is brilliant, then do find that on the Sustainable Wine Podcast channel. Today, and in fact, we hope quarterly from now on, the idea is that Joe and I will have conversations about how we talk to consumers and how we engage consumers in the complex world of sustainability and wine. Because I don't know about you, Joe, but the more I look at consumer data, the more confused I become because lots of surveys show lots of different things. We had had a conversation for this podcast about shall we discuss the latest consumer survey data, but they do all show quite different things on occasion. I mean, what's your view on that, Joe? There's a confusion, but I do think I possibly have an answer to it. There was a survey done by a brilliant company, great business in the UK, and they asked lots and lots of consumers about a series of different sustainability tags, whatever you want, you know, subjects, what really mattered to them. Particularly, I think it was wines that are you know, which matters to you. So there's things like, you know, sustainable vineyards, vegan vineyards, organic biodynamics, a whole series of things like that. When I looked at it, it was confusing to me because actually I didn't really believe it, to be honest. Not that I didn't believe that they got those answers, it just didn't really accord. So anyway, I did a different sort of research. So I went on to Google Trends and simply looked up those search terms and see how often they'd been searched on Google. And what was interesting was that the Google Trends results were the complete inverse of the survey results. And I see this quite a lot. So it's this difference between revealed and uh, claimed responses or data. You know, the claimed response people say in surveys, not really what they think, they say what they think the interviewer wants them to say to a degree. It's an interaction with another human being. You know, your real deepest, darkest secrets. One of the joys of being able to dig into Google Trends itself or actually other platforms. I use a platform called Answer the Audience quite a lot, where that's the deep and dark and dirty truth about what people are actually looking for online. So actually what it turned out was I think the survey suggested that people were really into sustainable wine. It turned out that the least important was vegan wine. Actually, on Google Trends, it's the other way around. Hardly surprisingly, I kind of get it. Vegans want to eat vegan wine. Sustainability is a loose, abstract, quite vague concept. People sort of know that they ought to be really into, but have very little knowledge of how to execute. And one of those things I'm hoping we can do concisely today is give people sort of senses of, actually, this is how you can execute, rather than it generally being a catch-all. I think when you execute against something, you've got to have an audience, and you know that it really matters to them, and it's a pain point for them, and you can say, okay, I've got the answer to the pain point. Vegan one, I've got the answer to that. I've bought up all the pea protein in Australia. I remember once being with a producer who'd done that. So I've got the only vegan wine that's been clarified in the whole of Australia. Job done, answer. That was a way of satisfying them. Saying you're sustainable is often too abstract. It's too vague. 
I agree. I mean, I think it's all about transparency, honesty, and storytelling, and that matters far more than the terminology. But let's let's talk about terminology for a little bit before we move on to reality. In other areas of agriculture that I work in, everybody is obsessed with regenerative, right? Because for the big agribusinesses, for the FMCG brands, for the retailers, and particularly the food companies, regenerative without being caught up in the regenerative organic trap is seen as the best way out of the confusion of sustainability in the sense that regenerative is seen as a much more forward-looking, progressive, we know how we can do it kind of term rather than sustainable, which is kind of hang on to what we've got in a vague way. And if you take the organic bit out of regenerative, the food industry is buying into it massively as the last best answer. Do you see that as applicable to wine? Not really, no. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there will be people who will claim it. And I, in fact, I know that there are people who claim it. But one of the great challenges that we will have with wine is that it has at its heart a number of original sins. Wine necessarily comes from somewhere nicer and warmer than where you are, and it's a long way away. Wine is necessarily a long-term monocultural product, which is inherently challenging to farm because it's a long-term monoculture. People complain about prairie farming in Leicester, in Lincolnshire, let alone in the United States. You've still got to rotate it. You can still go and do something different every year. And I'll tell you, there's a really good example, Barolo. Now, I like Barolo as a wine, but also as a place. There's something otherworldly about it, though. You go to Barolo, it's not only monocultural. It's been monocultural, you know, every vineyard is 50 years old anyway, until you replant. People don't particularly leave them fallow. They just sort of start again. There's everything. For an entire appellation. So you get there and it's like something is accidentally Wes Anderson. It's like a VR world that you've gone into. Much as it makes for really pretty pictures, you know, on Instagram, for farming, it's a terrible thing. What wine has tended to home in on, rather than sort of getting into regenerative and so on, what it ends up then focusing on are certain certifications, which are arguably a little bit better than regular farming, so organics, biodynamics. And then the other part really is the big CO2 emitter, which is shifting the stuff around. Because you've got to move it about, incredibly, in the world of wine, we've managed to choose the most inefficient 17th century technology to go and move the product about. You know, and really, you know, modern English glass invented by Sir Ken Elm Digby. We've not really moved on from that in any material way. The debate gets very much around, right, more than half the emissions of the making glass and shifting it around the world without any product in it, let alone when you put the wine in. And then, of course, the other half is we can't really do a whole lot about the fact that we have these massive monocultures, which are inherently bad, in a sense, for the environment. Yes, I would caveat what I said before by saying that regenerative is exciting the big agribusinesses and food companies only because they realize the limitation of sustainability as a term is not yet caught the consumer eye in the way that we want. Because I have a feeling you're right. It's going to be just as difficult to explain what regenerative means as any other word. And I remember someone saying to me once, you know, the word sustainability doesn't translate into Russian which does, in modern times, give you a whole other set of things to think about. But I have a feeling you're right about regenerative. And I think it's really about story of place and transparency. You know, a major wine retailer who was going to join the Sustainable Wine Roundtable a couple of years ago said to me, you know, I've got this vineyard in Bordeaux. I can't afford to make it organic. Not sure I should anyway, because of the carbon emissions that are higher from that. How do I tell the story of a 15 euro bottle of wine from Bordeaux? And I said, well, tell the story warts and all. 
talk about what you're trying to do, talk about what you can't do, talk about what you're able to do, and let the customer make up their own mind as to whether or not they want to buy your product. And that seems to me to be the way to go. And wine has a massive advantage in that area because it has that direct traceability. I wonder what you think about that. It's a sort of interesting one. One challenge that probably a variety of certifications do, we have that sense we need to teach people, educate people what certifications or terms and things mean. That's not true in many other areas of walks of life. I don't really know what Jaguar as a car brand means exactly. As a brand, of course, I have a general sense of what it's about. Brand regenerative, one of the reasons for the success to a degree of organics and biodynamics is that brand organic and brand biodynamic are quite powerful, actually quite good brands. Biodynamic people are probably horrified at that because in many senses, as a movement, it stands against what it sees as a kind of Western capitalist nature of brand. But that's the wrong way of looking at brand. John Hegarty, it's a piece of real estate in the corner of your mind. It's just a little place where somebody has, you own a little bit of somebody's brain and they understand you. We've not looked at a range of different sustainabilities as brands and building them out. In a sense, that's partly because they're not owned by any one person. This is a general collective commons, is that notion of brand, which has meant that it becomes very loose, it becomes very woolly, and it's never really got into the thing of understanding, well, what's the consumer need here? Now, actually, consumers do want to go and buy well. They do care about the environment. They do care that they're doing, they buy the right sort of way. But because there isn't, in a sense, some capitalist business who's making money out of the notion of sustainability, is not really drilling into that. You know, as a marketing consultant, I'm there going, no, let's just find that one pain point and sort of poke it with a stick and really point out that this is the answer to your problem. We're not saying, well, what's the answer to the consumer's problem in the world of, I want to go and buy these things in the right way. It just vaguely happens. And there's an altruism about it. It's a generally good thing to do, but there's lots of generally good things to do. Is it an early copywriter colleague? I know I'm slightly going off on a tangent, but there's a guy, Andy Maslin, and he said, you know, when you're writing copy, always write one of the seven deadly sins. Even if you're not actually explicitly saying, he said, ultimately, people don't buy stuff because they're good. They buy stuff because they're greedy or avaricious or lustful. or Those are kind of easy ways to turn people onto things. Now, you can do that in the right way. You can appeal to their sense of avarice or pride or whatever. Pride, actually, quite a good one for these sort of environmentally friendly products. But you've got to make it easy for them. And actually, most people are kind of vice-led more than virtue-led. So telling people something's very virtuous is often not a particularly brilliant way of going and getting them to shop into it. That's very interesting. If that's the case, and by the way, you're not not completely rewriting the traditional guidebook of marketing by saying that, right? It's been heard before. How does sustainability seek to change that, to go from meeting the drivers of a perceived sin to acting in a positive way through your purchase, because that is actually the crux of it, isn't it? Whether you're buying coffee or wine or chocolate, that's what we want consumers to do. Yet consistently, we see it's kind of a niche, but it's growing. Am I allowed to slightly go for it? Because I've just been working for Pix, which was a search engine for wine. I'm not working anymore. Pix is still there, but slightly facing some buffeting challenges from the world of venture capital and sporting online tech. One of the things that, and Pix will, it, it's already on its way back, so it's it's going to be exciting. And one of the things that I was 
pretty much at the heart of and was really fascinating was how we went and presented wines to people. And we did a lot of testing around this. And this is one of those areas where I think that the commercial wine industry probably isn't revealing enough of its own data to find solutions. And the solutions are not going to come out of educating people. They're not coming out of saying, well, I know what the facts are. You look at Aristotle. We're very good on logos of Aristotle's thing. We're very good at the logical argument. We're much less good at the pathos of saying, I know what your problem is here and I'm going to answer your problem. And indeed, the ethos of saying, listen to me because I really know what I'm talking about. So we did lots of testing. And one of the things that we found was that the traditional way of talking about wine, which is often around either the facts of the way the thing is made or indeed the way it tastes, were relatively poor at going and engaging people. And we tested this using Google AdWords, actually, it's quite interesting. The number one way of engaging people to click on a wine was to use a texture word, words like rich and refined and so on. However, one other interesting thing was it was around need states. So actually, above flavour, people are really interested in what does this satisfy? Now, when I say need states, people often think, well, wine to watch the telly with. And we would use those as a need state. There's actually a whole class of people for whom their need state is that they want to go and buy something that in some capacity is sustainable. There are a group of people out there for whom declaring that something is organic, biodynamic, sustainable, low emissions, a whole variety of things, or indeed made by women. Actually, one tag that we use in America, which was veteran owned, because lots of people really want to support veteran owned businesses. That, in a sense, is a pain point. One thing we tended to find is not only are there groups of people for whom that matters, so you should have that. And so we would have, it was actually an idea we lifted from Netflix, we'd have these three tags. So you'd see the bottle and you would say, rich, blackcurrant, organic. And that would be the three. Then in a fraction of a second, I can work out roughly if that's the right sort of thing for me. Go and look at Netflix tonight and see how they use them exactly the same way. What we also found was that people change. So there are occasions when people want to buy organic and other occasions when it doesn't really matter to them. So there isn't going to be a single solution, I don't think. But one of the insights we had was that you have to present it so that where people are in the mood to go and buy organic wine, this isn't the only thing. You still say it's a rich, ripe, fruity wine. It comes from the Napa Valley or wherever else it is, and it's organic. The other time then is to go and find other ways of jumping into queues. So we would go and do stuff around wine in boxes. And in the bits and wine in boxes, we would say not only are these amazing to go and have around the house all the time, but they're really low emissions. We also did stuff around right weight. You meant to say right weight rather than lightweight glass, aren't you? But it was a right weighted glass or a series of other parts. There will be times when people want to go and buy in that way. Key into, get into that and then get them loyal around those occasions. I think that was what really mattered. Trying to hammer it away. People who are absolutely dedicated organic specialists aren't necessarily the best ones to go and create a mass revolution in the way that we go and consume wine more sustainably because they've already preaching to the crowd. I mean, you know, you and I in the past have talked about in-groups and out-groups. You know, wine is very strongly led by in-groups, people who sort of know it inside out and are obsessed with it, and they think about it all the time, like you and me. Most people, fortunately for the world, aren't like you and me. They're very, very different. If I was to set up a winery making what I would want to make, which would be as low impact as possible, moving towards regenerative wine, but not organic, and it wasn't at a premium price point, but it was decently priced, yeah. you know, 15, 20 euros a bottle, something like that. And I got you in as a consultant. I said, Joe, look, I'm not doing the certification labeling thing for now. It's an organic or biodynamic, although I might use many of those practices. 
What would you advise me as to how I would reach customers in a compelling way using my packaging and brand? One of the first bits is it really matters to you that you're moving towards regenerative and that you're sort of low emissions winery and that you're sustainable. It really doesn't matter or is not immediately a thing that massively matters to certainly a broader audience. So you're massively limiting the audience if you say, I'm going to lead on the front foot with the virtue of being a sustainable winery. Actually, the number one thing you need to do is just good, actually, to be a whole load of things that often wine really isn't. And sometimes to look outside the world of wine, you know, like many people, you know, I'm very impressed at the way Oatly works. Oatly has fun copy. It's entertaining. At La Vie, which has got a whole series of ads at the moment in London, which is a vegan bacon. If you haven't gone and seen it, for a masterclass in a sustainable brand, La Vie Vegan Bacon is just utterly brilliant. And we need to introduce that in where the brand's front foot is, it's funny, it's got a personality, it has a character, you want to engage with it anyway. Integrated into that is its sort of props as a organic certifiable brand. But you're just leading with this. I think in wine we see, you know, you sometimes get where people say, oh, we made a whole series of wines, this is our organic label. And it immediately makes people think it's going to be the slightly shit one that you buy in a kind of hair-shirted way. I think organic wine often does have that. There was some quite interesting research, I think, where people faced with an array of wines. On the whole, they tended to value the organic one less. So start with quality, integrate it into the story. I think about a comment I heard from senior retail exec at Sistan Balajit when I went to visit them in June in Stockholm. I was looking at their beer aisle and I said, oh, look at this amazing funky marketing for beer. Why can't we do that with wine? And they said, well, beer is a very individual choice, whereas wine is more of a social choice. And you've got to be very careful about transferring one set of packaging ideas to another. What do you think about that? Does that hold up? It does to a degree. Funnily enough, there's a thing coming out next week as a press release, and somebody said that they got some research and they could understand that what the research found was that Halloween was associated with beer, Christmas was associated with wine, and the New Year was associated with champagne, and holidays for young people are associated with cocktails. And they're sort of, well, why would this be? Why would we not just have a drink choice that we would go through? And using a certain degree of social anthropology from my MPhil, actually, like 30 years ago, my sort of explanation was, well, beer is one of those occasions, there's a sort of relaxed element about it. And what you're not doing is sitting around a table having a collective drink, which is what you are doing at Christmas. So she's absolutely right at System that wine is a thing that is shared. One of those things that we often find when you go and get online wine apps, many of them lead with a palate matcher. So this is quite common, this notion of, you know, the sommelier in your pocket, answer some questions, we'll tell you what wine you most like. Where they stumble as a use case is that nobody drinks wine on their own, or at least relatively few people drink wine on their own. So around half of all drinking occasions are because people have done in and they're having a meal. If you want to know what people are doing when they're drinking a bottle of wine, they're having a meal with someone else, a partner, a friend or something. And it's usually because they're tired. Translate that into selling an organic message or organic message on the whole is something around do this for the right reasons as a personal value choice and there is a challenge there because that means i have to think about it 
really people aren't thinking when they're buying bottle wine, they're done in. And we were recording this on a Friday afternoon. There are tens of millions of people out there who kind of don't care what the wine is. They just want a drink because it's been a long week and they're done in. And they're going to have pizza, whatever it is, takeaway, just eat. And they're going to sit there with the bottle of wine. And then they're going to do the second most common thing that you do with a bottle of wine, which is watch the telly which is a real sort of unthinking thing. To work in a message, it has to lead with the fact that this is actually a great thing to share with other people that's not a laboured choice, particularly, that is kind of fun and that has a sense of being quite relaxing. You know, we know around a quarter of all drinking occasions, people are self-treating. Well, if organic has a sense of it being a slightly hair-shirted, less valuable choice, that runs totally counter to a quarter of all drinking occasions, which are, I want to treat myself with something a little bit special. Actually, you have to have a, a marketing message, which is, let's treat yourself to something that's a little bit special. Now, as it happens, it's organic, but I'm not going to go and make a big song and dance about it. If you're going to be led by the brands, I mean, just to give people an idea, so half of all drinking occasions, the number one need state is that people are tired and they want to relax. That's why they're drinking wine, is because they're like me, I've got too many kids and they want to put the feet up. A quarter is because they want to have some form of self-treating. They tend to happen towards the end of the week. And 15% are because people are with friends, with a group. And actually, a lot of the cues around there are, will I be embarrassed if I get this out in front of my friends? Again, if you are buying into something where there's a question of variability, like organics, biodynamics, you know, unless you know lots about wine, if you're a bit, well, I don't know if that's going to be any good, you're not going to do it because you're amongst a group of friends. That leaves about 5% of all drinking occasions for things like exploration, discovery, showing off, refreshments, and all those kind of other things. That's what people's needs are. About half the time they're doing it with a meal across all of those. And then about 20% of the time they're watching the telly. That's what people roughly do. Slightly less at weekends because people tend to have lunch they have to have a glass of wine at lunch and they sometimes have glasses of wine when they go out. Actually, the need states around wine and the use cases are pretty narrow. And you've got to sell to those first before you can really get people into the idea of, and by drinking this, you're going to change the world and save it. There's opportunities to apply that in different categories of wine, as we talked about the other day. But we should talk about that in another podcast. There's so much more I want to talk about. Well, when we come back and we can you know, tee this up for other people, because actually I think one thing that's going to be useful is for wine people is to understand how other industries do this, like, like beer, but actually my wife has vegan trainers. What lessons are there there for the wine brand? You know, they're super fashionable vegan trainers, but people have already seen them. But similarly, why does wine, what are the characteristics and the structures of the wine industry that make it sometimes more challenging? I think that's very much in the in-group, out-group sort of question. I'm, I'm saying that so that I've got a note mentally of what I have to talk about the next time. I'm running a through my other business, Innovation Forum, which I do as my main job. And obviously, the Sustainable Wine Roundtable thing is my part-time thing. I call it my retirement pitch which is what I'd like to do for the next 20 years. But in my main business, I'm running a big conference next week on sustainable landscapes and commodities. And we have a panel of marketing directors and sustainability marketing people talking about how you talk to consumers about sustainable commodities. So whether that's coffee, cocoa, whatever, and that's with some of the largest companies in the world. So I shall attempt to glean some insight from that to try and answer your question in the next podcast, Joe. It is very interesting to try and think about what we can learn there's a podcast I did, which you can find on the Innovation Forum podcast with Xavier Roussel, who's the marketing director for Dole Foods. And he pioneered their use of firstly codes and barcodes and then QR codes on bananas. 
and they've garnered hundreds of thousands or millions of clicks on their QR code to take a virtual tour around their banana farms of Colombia. They don't know how to associate that with sales, <laughs> but they do know that people, a certain proportion of their customers really love it. And it's a wonderful exercise in transparency. And you can do it for not that much money. It's in the hundreds of thousands or less. I will try and glean some more insights like that and build on them. And I'll try and bring those into the next podcast. But for now, Joe, thanks so much. Listeners, Joe and I planned this out yesterday, and then we haven't really stuck to our script, but then we don't usually. But I think this has been useful, has offered some insights, and we shall pick this up again soon because we're planning on doing this regularly. So anything you'd like to add in closing, Joe? I do find this utterly fascinating. And one of those things that you just touched on that sort of bananas, data, finding out where people are coming in, where people are going to. We have looked at this. We haven't got a full solution yet, but there is a thing that's fundamentally entertaining people. I I went on a virtual reality tour the other day of Diplomatico Rum. Now, if you can go and find ways where you can engage people like that from a QR code into a virtual reality space, back out into retail, that's going to be, a, I think, I believe, a really interesting journey. Connecting those dots is not there yet. We don't have the sort of integrated commerce like people do, in, in particularly in China, actually, where things all happen within these ecosystems. You know, technology is not all bad, and I think it could well create interesting routes of being able to take people into, well, why is this sustainable, capture them with a story there, and then direct them to a point of purchase that's near them. You can imagine that becomes quite an interesting journey. Yes. If you could do the metaverse without having to wear a weird headset and look at low-tech avatars, maybe that's the answer. We'll talk about that in future podcasts. In the meantime, Joe Fatterini, a pleasure as always. And listener, I hope this has been helpful. We shall be back again soon with some more attempts at insights. In the meantime, Joe, thanks so much. 